Today, we got a special speaker. And we have a special speaker because there's only so much of the senior pastor we could take. So we bring someone in like this every so often. Uh, but Chad, he's got a great story. Uh, he's a Marine. He's been uh, on tour to Afghanistan over and over and over again. Uh, he, he was an MMA fighter, is, uh, and, and still does some of that. He uh, started a foundation to work with guys in the military that come back with P- PTSD. And he's just got an incredible story how, how God took his life and changed him and transformed him from basically a tough Marine uh, to, to also being a tender father and, and a follower of Jesus Christ. And so he's with us this morning. Uh, we have a, a short uh, video we're going to watch. Before we show you, just real quick, he's got a, uh, this book and several in the back. His wife is back there, so they're traveling as a team, so you can go check that out. They told me that this is being turned into a movie. Uh, so the movie's coming out fairly soon. I'm glad we got him now, not after the movie, because his fee would go up. You know how that goes. So we got him early. But I'm already talking to him about a, you know, a fee, a discounted fee, because he's already been here. So we'll, we bring him back. So anyway, you can check that out. He's got some other material back there. But we're going to have about, about a minute video introducing him. And then please give him a warm welcome when he comes, okay? So let's watch the video. Good morning, church. Hey, uh... Thank you, Pastor David, for not only an introduction, but for having me here this morning uh, to share my story, or probably more accurately, the story of Christ in my life and the, the story that we can all share. Uh, when I pulled up, I saw this, if you guys didn't notice it, there's this giant picture of me on the side of the window out there. I was like, wow, that makes me look a lot bigger than I am, <laughs> little guy. And so I saw that. I had to go get a picture next to it, so I thought it was really cool. And this church has uh, just been so hospitable and amazing. If you're a new mem- uh, new or just coming visit today, uh, I'm a, I am a guest speaker, so I don't normally come here, but I can tell you that before I go to any church, I want to see where I'm going and learn about the church and maybe hear one of the pastor's, the pastor's messages. And uh, so this is an amazing church, and uh, Pastor David's doing that Nehemiah series, and it's going to be going again uh, next Sunday. And it uh, really ties into what I'm going to share with you today. So I definitely would encourage you to come back next Sunday and just continue on what we're going to talk about today. I want, I want to start off in... Um, by sharing a story from Afghanistan, uh, I, I had a really unique job in the military, being in uh, special operations as a force recon marine. I was very privileged to s- serve on what's called a JSOC, a Joint Special Operations Command Task Force. And so uh, I was with uh, a lot of Navy SEALs, uh, some Delta Force guys, and we were on this uh, team. And not normally like you might visualize military units to be with camouflage uniforms and big convoys and things like that. Usually I worked with one other guy. And we'd be in civilian clothes. I got to grow my beard really big and nasty. And, uh, and this particular day, it was just two of us. Uh, my buddy, he was, a, he was a SEAL. And uh, we were in a Toyota Prada, which is like a Toyota 4Runner. And we were driving on a road called Jalalabad Road into the capital city of Afghanistan, Kabul. And we were going down Jalalabad Road. And uh, we, again, we had civilian clothes. We each had a pistol, so not a bunch of weapons and really up to defend ourselves, looking to stay out of trouble. And we noticed a truck behind us, which was a Hilux pickup truck, and, and uh, it looked like a bunch of Taliban guys in it. And the reason it looked like Taliban guys is because they had big beards, tribal clothing on. They were a little dirty, and they, they had AK-47 assault rifles. We even seen an RPG, which is a rocket-propelled grenade launcher. Like, so these guys looked like they were up to no good, and there was a lot of them in the truck. To give you an idea of how many were in this truck, we have a joke. We'd say, um, how many Taliban can you fit in a, a Hilux pickup truck? So the answer is one more. 
Right, they like pile, pile in this thing. And so like pile in and they're following us and we're like, want to make sure they're not following us. So I use a technique called deviating your route to ensure someone's following you or not. So I, I'm on Jalalabad Road. I take a right. I make the block. And as I'm making the block and come back, turn right back on my original route, they turn with me. And uh, so my technique worked. It confirmed to me that they were following me. But it also lets them know that you know they're following you. So it started a chase, right? They started chasing me. And uh, I knew the city really well, so I thought I could, if I went into the city traffic, I could lose them. If you think traffic here in the Bay Area is bad, right? I know, I know it is, but it's nothing to third world traffic, right? This traffic in Kabul is so bad, and it started to get very congested. I had a really difficult time losing them. And I got to this major intersection called Masood Circle. And as I got to this intersection, the traffic just stopped. I didn't have anywhere to go. Somehow their, their truck came around and pulled in front of us and, and did a roadblock uh, in front of us about 15 yards. And uh, I was in a bad situation. I remember seeing a few guys jump out the back. The passenger door opened very vividly. I can remember in my mind. The guy stepping out of the passenger door, he had his AK-47. He's giving me a hand gesture to stop my vehicle. And uh, like I said, we were in a bad situation. That scenario is uh, being called stuck on the X. The, the X is an is ambush site. It's a kill zone. Uh, a couple of things you learn in, in training about the X is, number one, you have to be able to identify that you're on the X. Right? You've got to know you're in a bad situation. Number two, you have to get off the X. Right? It's kind of simple logic. If you stay there, something bad is going to happen. You've got to move. And uh, I'm so thankful for military training. I actually trained uh, for this exact scenario before, roadblock scenario, and, and what to do, like a ramming technique to get out of that situation. And so I hit the gas and I aimed my vehicle towards theirs. And as I smashed it in front of their truck, probably my favorite memory of Afghanistan is seeing those little Taliban guys fly out the back of that truck <laughs> as it spun out of the way. And uh, a few of them jumped actually ahead of time, but most of them flew out. And so when I hit that truck, it spun out of the way and I had a perfect pathway off the intersection. But there was actually like one more obstacle that's like this really old, like 100-year-old policeman. And he had his uniform on. He has whistle and he's like in charge of his intersection, right? So he's going he's gonna to stop me. He's blowing his whistle like beep, beep, beep. There was no way I was going to stop. I was going to run him over. So as I'm going towards him, what I love about Afghans is they always jump on the winning team. So when he seen I was going to run him over, he actually joined, joined my team. And uh, he started blowing his whistle and stopping cars and directing traffic and actually got me out of there. So he actually saved the day. And I was so thankful for that guy. But uh, I, don't, I don't know what those guys wanted on an intersection that day. But I could tell you that if we would have stopped on Masood Circle, if we would have stopped on the X that day, we would have probably put up a heck of a fight. But the truth is we would have probably been killed or taken. And uh, guys... Look, I'm here to say today, as, as a military veteran, you don't have to go to Iraq or Afghanistan to find yourself on the X in life. Right? Whether in combat or in life, you're going to find times where you, you're stuck on the X. I'm sure everybody in this, in this building right now can relate to a time in their life where they were essentially stuck on the X and had to make a decision whether they were going to move forward or stay there and die, either literally or metaphor, metaphorically. Right? We're going to find ourselves from time to time on those Xs in our life Right, it's just a matter of, of when and what are we gonna do when it happens. In the in the ministry I do working with other veterans at Mighty Oaks Foundation, I really I discovered from my own experience and hearing the stories of so many others that it comes down to one thing, and that's a choice. A choice to whether we'll stay there and die or move forward towards the life and the promise that God has for us. And it's a promise that we all have. Uh, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. It's a promise to God from all of us. And on a morning like Sunday and you go to church and you hear that, it could sound really good and maybe you read it in a devotional one day. But when the chaos of life comes, when you find yourself on that X, you can forget that promise, right? 
But God's word and God's promise for us doesn't change because our circumstances changes. It doesn't change because it gets hard. It doesn't change because we find ourselves in a difficult time. But we have to be able to choose to step in that promise and to move forward when we find ourselves on those times. Uh, I wish I could say I always move forward when I found myself on the X or that I knew or even trusted the promises of God. But that's not the case. In uh, 2007, I came home from my eighth and last deployment uh, from Afghanistan and I found myself stuck in the X again. I was diagnosed with PTSD and I didn't, uh, I didn't one, recognize I was in the X because of pride or shame, whatever reason. Uh, and because of that, I couldn't step off the X. I chose to stay there for a period of almost three years. And I tell you, it almost cost me and my family everything. Uh, the problems and the hardships in my life didn't start in Afghanistan. Uh, it started much earlier on as, as a child. Uh, my father was a Marine as well. He's, he's a Vietnam veteran. In fact, my son, Hunter, is a Marine also, so we have three generations of Marines in our family, something we're super proud of. Thank you. If, you're, uh, if you can, keep my son in his prayers. Uh, he's actually on, he just got activated to go to Afghanistan, so he'll actually be not only a third-generation Marine, but a third-generation Marine combat veteran in our family. So he's excited to go, and we're excited for him, but a little nervous, of course. I love going to Afghanistan, but I don't love my kids <laughs> going to Afghanistan. But... Um, you know, when my father came home from Vietnam, he struggled with a lot of the th- same things that many military warriors who are facing combat are struggling with today. He was a very angry guy, uh, a lot of depression, and, and there's a lot of alcohol, uh, women in his life, and a lot of physical abuse in my home uh, towards my mother, towards myself. And I don't mean spankings. I mean, like, fist-to-face physical abuse. And that's the household uh, that I uh, sadly grew up in. And if anybody's ever been in an environment like that or a dysfunctional family, you know the siblings get really close. And so I had a brother, he was a year older than me, and uh, we were very close. In fact, we talked about joining the military together to really kind of start, escape the life and start, start a new life together. And uh, we started running and, and, and swimming when we were 13 years old and making that plan to, to do that when we got older. Well, when I was 14 and, and he was 15, he was, he was shot and killed. And uh, for me, it was, it was absolutely tragic. Uh, he was the closest person to me in my life at that time. And I went into a very deep depression but for some reason, and I'm thankful looking back, that I just stayed, uh, I stayed on a course to prepare for the military. So in that, in that isolation, I just ran, I swam, I prepared. I wanted to be in some type of special forces, uh, but I didn't want to be in the Navy, so I didn't want to be a SEAL. Uh, so I, I wanted to join the Marine Corps. And uh, when I was 17 years old, I met a recruiter named Staff Sergeant Brown, and he uh, introduced me to the Marine Corps and got me in a contract to go in, and I didn't even have a high school diploma. Uh, I was living on my own. I was a very, you know, I'm very thankful for that second chance that he gave me. I went into the Marine Corps uh, with that goal to be a recon Marine. In that first year, I tried out and I made it. It's a, it was a huge accomplishment for me. The, the, the tryout, the dropout rate's about 85% still to this day. And so to make it uh, that early on, uh, it was, it was a, a huge blessing. And uh, the people in that community, the mentors and leadership I had, it was uh, such a great time to come in so early in my life. And and learn and train because I would have almost 10 years of experience before I ever got to do that job and go to, go to combat. Um, we started my family early on. I met my wife, Kathy, when I was 18 years old. She was 17, and we got married. So we've been married 23 years now. We do have three children. So. But again, during that time, there was no wars going on, so we got to really invest in my career as a Marine and our, and our family. And I remember, like, Almost 10 years later, watching that television, and many of you have seen the same thing, seeing those planes fly in their World Trade Center buildings. Uh, as I seen that unfold, I knew like my life was going to be radically different. I just knew. I'm like, life's about to change. And um, I tell you, I'd, going to our unit in the military, no one, no one in the military was like, oh my gosh, we're going to war. 
Like everyone was going their commands like, hey, sir, what's up? Like when are we going to do this? The military is extremely motivated and, uh, and wanted to participate in, in making that wrong a right. And, uh, and I, I was too, and I, I wanted to deploy. A lot of times when I speak, uh, some of the ladies are like, why would you want to go to war? Like you're some kind of warmonger. Uh, the only way I know how to explain it to ladies is like having a really nice dress and not having any place to go. Like, you tra- <laughs> if you train for like 10 years for something, like, they train for 10 years for something, you want to go do it. And, I, and I, so I wanted to go, and I tried out for this JSOC task force. I got deployed, and I would have said I was prepared. Um, I get to speak a lot to the active duty military about resiliency, about being mentally, physically, and spiritually prepared. And I, I was mentally prepared. Uh, definitely knew my job. I was motivated. I was physically prepared. I was in shape. I could, I could do all the things that I needed to do for my job. And I would have said I was spiritually prepared because my, the word Christian was stamped on my dog tag. But I really didn't know what that meant. Uh, in fact, I, I did bring my family to church. We went to church as a family back then. But uh, uh, looking back, I think I brought my family to church more as a control. Like uh, I brought my wife to church because she'd be a that Proverbs 31 virtuous woman and be faithful and all the things that husbands want out of a wife. And my kids would go to Sunday school and they'd be, get discipline and character and all these great attributes. But like I wasn't going to like hang out with the, the church softball team and with those guys. That was, wasn't me. And so I, I had this belief in my mind that somehow Christianity was, was weak. And uh, somehow as a warrior, I would have to choose in life between being masculine and being this warrior and do this job that I had to do in Afghanistan and being a, and being a Christian or a person of faith. And I, I tell you, um, especially to men, there's no bigger lie than that from the enemy that somehow we have to trade our masculinity for our Christianity. And I wish I would have knew that. Uh, because I tell you firsthand, there's no one stronger and more courageous on the battlefield than men of faith. In the battlefield of, of Afghanistan or a battlefield of life. And, uh, but I thought I had to choose and I thought, well, I'm going to be a warrior, right? I could do this faith thing later, maybe when I get older. And so I believe I intentionally put God out of my life and put God out of my heart to do this job and it left a giant hole inside of me that I fill with hate and rage and anger and bitterness. And I became kind of an angry, a very angry person over time. I didn't, I didn't live on a base. I lived in the Afghan community. So I ate dinner in their homes. I played soccer with their kids. And I heard, heard the stories of what the Taliban had, had done to these families. And then I got to witness what they'd done to you know, little children and, and women. And, and, uh, and I began to have hatred inside of me. And the Afghan people that I worked with probably had the most hatred for them. And, and, uh, and I tell you, uh, my mindset of going back and retaliating for 9-11 as a, as a United States military really shifted quickly to really helping these people that were truly oppressed by the Taliban. And, and, and it made this uh, kind of intensity inside of me. Everyone I worked with in my task force had this kind of Viking culture, and so it was a very intense, very angry mindset. And it felt like it worked really well in Afghanistan. But where it didn't work well was when I came home 24 hours later, and I'm coming from Afghanistan, and I'm back home in the United States, and I'm supposed to be a husband and a, a father and Mr. Rogers, like the friendly neighbor. Like, that didn't work so well. I was still came home. I couldn't flip a switch. I'm still an angry, intense guy. And, uh, and it, it shames me every time I speak, and I, I get to share this a lot, but it's still ashamed every time to tell you that my house was not a happy place. My, my children and my wife were, were scared of me. I would, they were walking around the eggshells, and I'd throw temper tantrums like a 15-year-old child when I didn't get in my way. Scream, yell throw things, punch holes in the wall. Um, I was just an angry guy, and, and my family suffered for that. And um, I can tell you one time, I came home from Afghanistan. I was going to be home for my daughter's birthday party, and she was really excited I was going to be there. But she's a very opinionated girl. She still is. This is who she is, right? She's, and so she didn't like the icing on her cake. 
And I like flipped out and I grabbed a handful of my little girl's birthday cake and I threw her whole cake against the wall and just destroyed her birthday. I remember thinking like, at that time, thinking like, what kind of dad does something like that? And the, the truth is I did stuff like that all the time. And uh, I was totally out of control. And I knew it, but like those who have faced anger issues before, you know, you, you know, you know you're out of control. You know you cross the line, but you won't back down because backing down means you're going to have to admit you're wrong. And so it's easier just to kind of distance yourself. And that's what I began doing. Over time, that, that anger started turning to anxiety. I didn't know what it was at first, but my arms would go numb. My face would go numb. Sometimes it felt like my throat was swelling shut. Or like I had like a, maybe a thousand pound weight on my chest. I couldn't breathe. Like I was having a heart attack. And I didn't want to say anything to the guys I worked with because one, I thought they would think I was weak. Uh, and two, I thought I might get pulled out of my job because of those issues. And which was not a paranoia. It was probably a reality. And so I didn't say anything. I just pushed it down and kept doing my job and it worked for a little while. But things got worse. In fact, I had, a, I had a 10 team members that were Afghan, Afghans and they were very close to me. Um, I had worked with them for three years. Uh, some of those guys were, were captured and tortured and, and killed. And, uh, and so things started getting really, uh, really real for me in, in that environment. And I, I really uh, had this imminent sense of doom. Sometimes I'd go out on, on different operations and I'd, I'd leave like little notes for my wife, like a note from my wife telling her she could you know, move on with her life and a note from my son that he's going to have to take care of the family. And notes for all my kids. I put them in a the lid of my suitcase that way, in case something happened to me, they, I know my personal effects would make it home. And I'd get back from that mission, survive, and throw those notes away so no one would find them, and I'd do it all over again. And so I had this very imminent sense of doom, and the, the anxiety was building up. In fact, I started getting worse. I started having these almost out-of-body experiences and these moments to where I was losing uh, memory of time. And, uh, and there was a period of about two weeks where I couldn't remember almost a whole two weeks. And during that time, I was by myself with, uh, with some, some local Afghans, and I, I realized that I didn't only put myself in danger, but I put other people in danger as well. And so it was time for me to, to ask for help and say something. And when I did, I was brought home, uh, and I sat before a psychologist with my wife, and I was diagnosed with PTSD. I had no idea what it was. Um, uh, matter of fact, it, it might sound crazy because everyone knows what PTSD is right now, but I was in a small special operations community in 2007, so when a doctor said you have PTSD, it sounded like something I contracted it or something. I was like, well, give me a shot for it and send me back overseas. I got work to do. Like, but uh, it was obviously something much more serious, and uh, it was something that um, the symptoms were very real. I hate the word disordered. In fact, uh, you know, as a Christian, uh, I, I don't believe that uh, we are disordered. When we, when our body has a very normal response to abnormal situations. In fact, uh, we have a book table in the back. I wrote a book specifically about that. But the truth is, the, the symptoms were very real. I felt like I was going to literally, like physically die at any moment. The panic attacks were so overwhelming. And on top of that, I felt completely ashamed that I had failed. And uh, so I was dealing with these physiological symptoms of fear and shame and, uh, and, and just failure. And so I, I couldn't really find a way to snap out of it because I didn't like the medicine that they were giving me. It made me feel like I was like a zombie. And so uh, my wife and my counselor encouraged me to get on the mats and do jiu-jitsu. Uh, Jiu-Jitsu is a martial art, a grappling martial art. Uh, I was already a professional MMA fighter at the time, and I was undefeated. I was pretty good at it. I'd been doing it, I'd say I'd been doing it since I was little, but I'm still little. So I've been doing it my whole life. So, so uh, I started when I was five. And uh, so I, I, uh, I got on those mats and trained. And I tell you, if, when I got on those mats and trained for the first time, I felt like I found the cure. Uh, because you can't think about Afghanistan and anxiety and depression while you're grappling or somebody's going to beat you up. You have to pay attention. So it had me focused and I was, and it is good for me. It was, it was great. Uh, but you can have a medicine for being sick and you can abuse that medicine. And that's what I did with jujitsu. 
I mean, I love jiu-jitsu still. I still train all of, you've seen the videos. I still train. I love it. In fact, doing ministry is very hard and I get stressed out. And when I have a bad day at the office, I go over to the gym and I find like some 19-year-old stud. And I choke him out. Like, that's, uh, I get back to the office and we share the gospel. Uh, but it's always a good time to share when you're, when somebody thinks they're dying, it's a great time to t- introduce them to Jesus. So, but, uh, yeah, I, I love jiu-jitsu, but it, because of, I misused it. Instead of getting well, I just hid in it, and I became very successful. I, I, uh, I was 18 to two as a professional fighter. I won a world title belt. I was ranked number one in the U.S. and number six in the world as a flyweight, and I was fighting on all these big shows. And uh, started getting um, a lot of vanity because of the popularity of it, and then successful financially because we had a thousand students in our school, and and so everything looked like success on the outside, but it really was this fake facade of success because underneath it all. Uh, our family was still falling apart. I was still having panic attacks. I was still angry. And, and what, the, what made it worse was now I'm in this environment where I could tell, uh, I could, I had no accountability. Like people would tell me everything I wanted to hear, but I had no one that would tell me what I needed to hear. And if anybody tried to hold me accountable or anything, I'd just push them out of my life. And, and uh, I, I can tell you, men, there's, especially men, there's probably no more dangerous place to be in this world. Not Afghanistan or Pakistan or anywhere like that, but to be in this world without any, without any accountability. I look back now at my life and I was like a train with no brakes, like heading to a brick wall. And it was just a matter of time before I crashed into something. And, and I did. Um, my marriage was uh, completely dead, falling apart. Many times I'd sleep in uh, at the gym or, or a friend's house or my kids' bedrooms or even in my own bed. Probably the loneliest place Kathy and I have ever been in is in our own bed with our backs turned to each other in like this dead marriage. And uh, it didn't take long for me to with the popularity of, of fighting, it didn't take long for me to walk outside of my marriage and relationships with other women. In an affair, sitting, we sat our kids down and told them that we were going to get divorced and that everything was going to be better. Guys, it wasn't going to be better. Our kids were devastated. And uh, we decided to do it anyway. We sold our home, signed two separate 12-month leases on two different apartments, and filed for divorce. My wife and I had two very, very different reactions. Um, my wife went to a church, much like this one, um, not just on Sundays, that, you know, she would go there most days of the week, and she met like a really strong group of people. And I always, every time I stand in a pulpit, I always just could kind of visualize where they say she would go and stand like to this wall on the left side of the pulpit here, and she would stand there and she'd pray for me. People would say that sometimes she couldn't even stand up because she'd be crying, kind of collapse. And uh, and I've asked her many times, you know, how could you pray for me when I was totally betraying her that way? And she said she would just pray, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. That's what she was doing for me when I was doing this to her. Now, uh, we had two, again, we had two very different reactions because for me, like, I, don't, I don't have to deal with her anymore. I could be dad when I want to be dad and have fun with my kids and my boys that wrestle and train too and, and uh, just have fun. And now I'm in this bachelor pad and I have this big fight on Showtime, fighting in, uh, in Strike Force in, in front of, uh, of 10,000 people in the Toyota Center. And so I was really focused on that, and everybody kind of lifted me up for that for that fight. And this fight was crazy fight because uh, I was fighting this up and comer guy, and all my all my other wins were by uh, finish. I finished the guys, but this was my only decision win. I mean, the guy like punched me, knocked me down. I got up, started like fighting like a crazy person. I kicked him in the face like three times, knocked him down. It was back and forth battle, and I was just fighting so hard that night to win, and I won a split decision victory. And uh, I remember my hand being raised in front of those ten thousand people. All those people there cheering, but you know, Kathy was wasn't there. She wasn't one of them. And uh, and and just after that, I remember thinking like how hard I had fought to win that fight, but me giving up on on, on my family. 
And I went back to that, that apartment and I was in this depression uh, of, the, of the realization of that. And I started thinking about all the things that in my life, all the people that I blamed, right? My dad for the way I was raised, the military for some things in the military, and my wife for never understanding. Like my, my attitude my whole life has been like everyone's an idiot. And it's true, there's a lot of idiots, right, out there? You guys know, <laughs> right? Uh, just get on the highway when you leave here, you'll find them. But, but the, the, what the realization I came to was like, I was the common denominator. It was me. And when I came to this realization, I decided, well, you know, maybe my family would be sad without me, but they're going to be better off. And uh, unfortunately, that, that, that hopeless thought finds a home in 22 veterans a day. Uh, and I'm sure many outside the veterans. Uh, and I decided I was to take my life. And so I would uh, sit in my closet. I had my old family pictures kind of laid out, and I had my pistol in my hand. And I would uh, try to build my confidence up to, to, take, to go ahead and pull the trigger. Now, I knew my kids would find me, so that's what kind of delayed me because I don't want my kids to find me that way. And my wife, she came to my apartment, and she knocked on the door and unwittingly. She, she saved my life. Um, I remember hiding a, a gun under the blanket and... Uh, and answering the door and talking to her. And we had this argument over some papers we were going to sign. And she asked me a question that radically changed, changed my life. It's the reason I'm here today. She asked me how I could do everything I did in the military, become a recon marine, training for these deployments, uh, the MMA fighting, like cutting weight. I lose like 35 pounds like cutting weight for these fights. Like the amount of discipline it takes to train and do the things I've done in my professional life. She's like, how could you do all these things? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. Now, uh, and I don't know about the rest of you guys in here, but there's no more soul-cutting word to me than to be called a quitter. And, uh, and she was absolutely right. I had quit on the most important things in my life. Being a husband, being a father, being a young 17-year-old kid that raised his hand and had a brand new chance at life, I quit on all those most important things, including my own health and my own will to live. And it was time for me to make a, a change. I, I knew I couldn't do it by myself, but uh, I also knew I couldn't do it with the people I'd surrounded myself by. And so I asked my wife if there was someone at the church she was going to that could step in and help me with this decision. And she introduced me to a man named Steve Toth. Steve was the elder at the church. He never served in the military. But we met at a Starbucks, and he had the perfect gift to help me. He has ADD, like really bad. <laughs> and the reason I say that is because the guy's like so impatient. If he left this building right now, he would run to his car because walking's like a waste of time. And, and, and it, was, it was a gift for our situation because I was so manipulative. I would have said all the right things. In fact, I had written this perfect plan out, uh, and I was, I was really impressed with myself of how good it was. It was like a military operational order. And I remember sitting at Starbucks, and I slid it over to him, and uh, like all you know, really big ego and how great it was, and he didn't even read it. He slid it back over to me and told me I was going to fail. I remember being like really offended, like, who is this guy? Like, I put some work into this, you didn't even look at it. And he tapped on it and he said, if this doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time and I'm not going to let you waste mine. And uh, that was exactly what I needed to hear because I had tried everything. I had been on pills and medication. I had been through the counseling. I had tried the MMA and jiu-jitsu. None of those things changed anything. And it was time for me to try something different. In fact, the ministry we have to veterans uh, at Mighty Oaks is one of our token phrases. If what you're doing isn't working then why not try something different? And uh, so I did. I trusted this man, Steve, and I surrendered my life to Christ. And beyond that decision, Steve mentored me for an entire year in biblical manhood, and uh, everything changed for me. What I discovered through that process was, uh, was that the, decision, the decisions I had made had an impact on my life. See, the incidents of my past, as bad as some of those things may have been, my childhood in Afghanistan and all those things that I experienced, those things didn't lead me to be in that closet with a pistol in my hand. What led me there were the choices that I made in response to those things. And I never lost control of the ability to choose. And as 
corny as it may seem, for me it was just a, it was an earth-shattering moment to realize that I didn't have to let my past define my future anymore. I could choose a different future. And through that realization, I, I didn't only find restoration in my marriage and my life, but I found hope for the first time in a very long time. And I found what I think most people live, live their whole life seeking, and that's purpose. And that purpose is to be here today and share the story of Christ in my life. Um, I felt like I found that. Mark Twain says it like this, the two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born and the day that they find out why. I felt in that moment I discovered why I was here. You see, when I was going through all this, I thought I was the only one. Like, no one's life could feel as hopeless as mine. No one could have, have this hurt this deep. But the truth is, I, I wasn't the only one. And just in the veteran community, it was 22 suicides a day. There was 80% divorce rate on Camp Helen, Camp Helen where, where I live. I wasn't the only one. It was a lot of other people struggling. And, but now I felt like I had the solution. Like, if I was dying of cancer and this guy Steve gave me the cure, like, I didn't want to share it. I felt obligated to share it. And so Kathy and I decided that, hey, we feel called by God to share what we have been given. You know, the challenge that Kathy gave me, the, the mentorship that Steve gave me, and the, the second chance that God asked for us all, I wanted to share it, and so we decided to start Mighty Oaks Foundation. And we didn't start it because we knew what we were doing. In fact, it was probably a terrible idea. We had no idea what we were doing of running a nonprofit, and we were still bleeding ourselves. It was a terrible idea for us to start it. But I look back, and it was, it was such the right thing to be obedient to God to do that. Uh, we've reached over 100,000 active duty troops with a message of spiritual resiliency. We, uh, we run 30 one-week programs per year at ranches around the country, these, these incredible ranches. One in San Luis Obispo County, we have a 25,000-acre ranch. We bring, bring all these guys on active duty in the veteran community. We've had 2,250 graduates come through the program uh, on orders uh, to, to find hope and restoration from suicide, divorce, anxiety, depression, and uh, b- just simply because... We were able to step off that X and move forward in a life God created us to live and then pay forward the lessons that we've learned. And I'm so thankful to have been able to do that. In fact, um, we, uh, one of the things I, I like to do in every church, I'm so thankful for, uh, for the church to allow us to do this, is we have some flyers in the back. If anybody uh, knows any veteran that needs to come through a program like that, or even if you don't, grab a flyer, stick it in your glove box. You never know when God will cross your paths. Uh, everything we do absolutely is 100% free, including travel for the guys uh, and, and, and the spouses as well. And so there's so many stories I could tell you about, about Mighty Oaks, but I, uh, I was very uh, grateful the church would let us share a little video of one of the families that came through. Uh, Mark Estrada was a Marine, and he, uh, he had uh, faced many of the things from combat that uh, many of the warriors face. He had PTSD. A lot of the guys get on so much medication because uh, cl- clinical solutions seem to be what everybody's pushed through. And so he was on uh, many of these guys getting like 40 pills a day, uh, which sounds extreme, but it's very common, and because uh, they, they just keep accumulating. And so Mark was uh, on all these medications. He ended up on, he ended up going on meth because the medications wasn't enough. Uh, he went to a Padres game, and in his depression, handed his phone to the security guard, said, "Tell my wife I love her." And he jumped off the, br- the bridge from the Padres stadium. Ended up in a coma, broke his, his fractured skull, broke his pelvis, and attempted to take his life. Uh, came to our program, and uh, we have a little video of uh, Mark and Iris to share with you. He deployed about a week and a half to two weeks after we got married. He left to Iraq on a almost eight-month deployment. I served in the United States Marine Corps. A lot of the deployment and things that had happened over there, along with my past, have never been dealt with. Some pretty dark secrets that were starting to come up. Coming back from Iraq, life was moving on pretty quick, and I continued doing 
what I knew best, and that was to just numb myself with drinking. I started to notice a really big change in him. He was so disconnected, so quick to anger, so impatient. I remember just kind of feeling hopeless, rage and anger all at the same time. I went out to a bridge and these past hurts and this past disgust just kind of came out that day. Handed my phone to a security guard and had told him to tell my wife that I loved her. And uh, I leaped off this bridge uh, attempting suicide. My life changed at that point. I loved him, but I didn't feel like I was in love with him anymore. Four days later, I woke up out of a coma. Around this time, I was also introduced to painkillers. I started abusing. I fell into one of my darkest addictions. And I started using crystal meth. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help Mark. I'm so angry with him because of his continuous choices. So I hear about this program called Mighty Oaks. This had to work for me. This was either the make it or break it point in my life. Mighty Oaks taught me that no man fights alone, that I have a, a purpose beyond just being a Marine. For once, I could see the clarity in his eyes. I just saw hope in him again, which gave me hope. I got invited to the women's fight club at Mighty Oaks. That's when I made a decision to choose to love Mark. I looked at my kids and it's like, they're so worth it. You know, Mark is worth it, I'm worth it, our marriage is worth it. We didn't get married by accident. Well, we both know our roles and what God said as my role as a husband, her role as a wife. You know, we're not perfect, we're still learning. We're still growing as a couple, we're, we're rebuilding. There's that triangle in our marriage. If we're both, you know, aligning ourselves and shooting towards Christ, you know, things will run according to His will. The tool that I learned from Mighty Oaks was that there's no need for you to fight alone. I just realized how important it is to have these brothers walk alongside me in life and keep me on the right path. I now have a, a brotherhood again. I'm so grateful for Mighty Oaks because if it wouldn't be for them, military families like ourselves would truly end up divorced and I mean some of our men may even lose their lives. We have an understanding now for each other and I think I have just so much more compassion and love for him than I did before. God has a, a plan. It can be fulfilled as long as I stick to his blueprint. I learned a new purpose, and I found my identity in Christ. Yeah, well, I want to thank I want to thank Pastor David for allowing us to, to share that and uh, our ministry and the work that we're doing uh, for this sheer purpose of getting it out there that you know if, if there is many military veterans here or active duty or spouses or you know anyone. Please, you know, there is hope. There is a solution to these problems. And, uh, and again, all the programs are absolutely free, no strings attached, and uh, the information's back at the table. But, uh, hey, this hope that I'm talking about isn't reserved for combat veterans, not reserved for people like Mark and I. It's just for everyone. It's the promise that God has for us. There's a, there's a million ways in this world that you get hurt outside of Iraq and Afghanistan. A million ways you can be hurt in this life. But I truly believe there's only one way to get well. And that's through a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, life, life is hard. 
And we're going to find ourselves on those different X's in our lives, so to speak, uh, whatever it might be, whether it's depression or anger or anxiety or hopelessness or selfishness or laziness, whatever it is, you've got to know that God has a plan and purpose for you. He has a promise for you. I want to uh, bring us back to Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans are I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's for you. That's for each of you. And I challenge you to remember that when you find yourselves in those hard times and those X's in your life. Sometimes that promise, it'll bring you to your knees in prayer. And other times I pray it just gives you the very strength you need to just press forward. Can I pray with you? Lord, thank you so much for a church like this. Thank you, Pastor David, for opening the doors of this church to to be in Kathy and in, in our ministry, Lord. And I just pray for each person here, Lord, for the people who are who this is their church home, for the people that are here for their very first time today, Lord. Whatever their ex they're on their life, whatever they're facing, Lord, they'll know that if there's breath in their lungs, Lord, you still have a plan and purpose for them. And in that plan and purpose, you have a promise for them, Lord, to be able to press forward through the trials of life and find victory in, in the relationship with you, Lord. I just pray that truth resonates in the hearts of each person here, Lord, and that uh, new or old members here will come together as a family and hold each other and, and hold each other's arms, lock arms, to be able to move forward to that together, Lord, as the body of Christ. And I just pray, uh, I pray as each person leaves here today, Lord, they just have a blessed day and be able to, able to uh, rejoice today in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.